thanks so much for coming out uh, tonight. Um, isn't it great to have John back in the valley with us? Yeah. Please help me welcome John Talton back to the Poison Pen. Real treat to have you, always. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I hope everybody can hear me. Um, and uh, it's great to be here with Patrick yeah. and with to see so many friends, and uh, especially at a time when fewer and fewer people buy books and support bookstores. Uh, this is an absolute treasure that uh, has been maintained. Thanks so much. And Barbara would usually be here, but she's caught. We, we think she's impervious to any sort of virus. I don't think it can really latch onto her, but <laughs> she's concerned that she may have caught something and didn't want to come and expose anybody to it. So, um, yeah, she's she's doing she's doing good. She's tough. Yeah, she had pneumonia recently and decided to go to Boston to see an art show. I mean, <laughs> she's pretty amazing. Um, so. Anyway, uh, you're stuck with me tonight, but I'm, I'm delighted to, to be here uh, talking to John. Um, you know, we met many, many years ago now, and uh, you know, some of you are, I'm sure, are familiar with the David Mapstone series, uh, you know, set in contemporary Phoenix. And I remember asking John, I'm like, I know you've got like a Phoenix confidential in you <laughs> somewhere, you know, because you're such an encyclopedic about Phoenix history. Um, and have written about it. And uh, so when I heard about this new series, the Gene Hammond series, I was like, oh, this is wonderful, you know. Um, tell us a little bit about, about what Phoenix was like in the Depression, in the 30s, coming out of the 20s. Well, it was very different than it is now. Uh, Phoenix in 1930 had a population of probably 60,000. And it was uh, the center of an agricultural empire that had about half a million acres under cultivation with citrus groves and uh, farms and uh, flower gardens. Uh, the alluvial soil of the Salt River Valley will grow anything if you just add water. And so we built our mighty dams and our canal system. We have the technology that the Hohokam did not have. And we were served by uh, two railroads, including in, in 1926, the Southern Pacific opened uh, what was called the Northern Main Line through Phoenix. And so Phoenix was finally on a transcontinental railroad. People often uh, say to me, well, Phoenix didn't grow uh, until air conditioning came along. But air conditioning wasn't really the problem because if you look at before air conditioning was developed, you look at cities such as New Orleans uh, or Houston or Dallas, and they are incredibly hot and humid, at least for Houston and New Orleans, and yet they grew. Uh, Phoenix didn't grow because it lacked the railroads. And so when the Southern Pacific came through in 1926 with the Northern Main Line, 
It routed all of its uh, passenger trains through Phoenix, um, and it also provided um, the ability to ship our uh, produce uh, all over the country. Uh, and we ship produce as far as New York City, get a rope. Um, and uh, so there's that aspect of Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix was already the largest city in Arizona because Arizona didn't even have a million people. It probably had half a million people in 1930. Uh, but it also, uh, Phoenix also had a notorious red light district and it, it had police corruption and it had uh, real live gangsters whether homegrown or uh, from the Chicago outfit which placed uh, a uh, gambling wire here uh, under the stewardship of a fine fellow named Gus Greenbaum who was later murdered <laughs> He was later murdered in a house in Palmcroft on Monte Vista. Yeah. And the house still exists. And uh, Greenbaum was the master of the skim in the Las Vegas casinos. But he loved Phoenix. Uh, so he was, t this is way after his time in the 30s. This is in the 50s. He, he loved Phoenix, but the... Uh, outfit wanted him to stay in, in and mind the casinos in Las Vegas and take the skim, uh, the profits off the top of the casino winnings before the betting commission could audit them. And uh, but he also developed a severe cocaine addiction and alcoholism, and he started skimming more and more for himself. Individual mobsters at his level could take a little bit, but if they took too much, they would get a warning. And Greenbaum was w warned again and again, and then one night, uh, two hit men, as he and his wife were uh, about to have supper, uh, or dinner if you're from Durant, Oklahoma, which is which is lunch. Um, but um, they were about to have supper. They were cooking steaks, and two hit men came in. And uh, what happened next was that uh, both of them were uh, tied up, and they were separated. And uh, I believe and Cal can correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, Greenbaum was taken back in the bedroom and shot in the head, and his wife was uh, shot on the living room sofa. And then the uh, hit team stayed and enjoyed the steaks. Um, and that was the end of Gus Greenbaum. Wow. I always kinda, heard that their throats of, uh, were No, they didn't slash their throats, no. I don't believe. No. Um, too messy. Too messy. Now, wasn't Greenbaum the one that had the sort of the penthouse at the very top of the Lures? Was he, it the Lures he had tower? his office on the Lures Tower, yeah. Yeah, wow. Now, when you come back to Phoenix, uh, is it kind of like, 
What's it like for you? I mean, you're seeing less and less of the old Phoenix. Um, it, it's very painful um, because the city of my heart is gone. Uh, I look and everywhere I see is gravel and uh, palaverty trees where they don't belong. Um, this was an oasis and it was lush and there were beautiful trees everywhere, beautiful shade trees and lawns and uh, and I'm not talking about in far, 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 far all white tukey or someplace like that. That's fine. You can throw down your gravel. The Arizona Rock Products Association thanks you for your business. But in the center city, it, it was an oasis, and it was a natural oasis. And that was why uh, it was uh, cooler and the summers lasted uh, shorter times. Uh, I would go to Kenilworth School in, in early September, and the air the classrooms were not air conditioned. They just opened the windows because the summers didn't last so long. And we're not even talking about climate change because I'm sure there are some deniers in the crowd, this being Arizona. But we're we're talking local warming. This has been created when you pave over paradise and uh, now we have these six lane uh, highways called city streets um, and so I'm, I lament how ugly Phoenix has become. And it used to be so beautiful, and this is not sentimentality. I remember it vividly. And it was this way up into, through the 90s. If, if you got here after 1990, then you really missed something. You missed the Japanese flower gardens. You missed the miles and miles and miles of citrus groves. Uh, I remember when when I was an EMT paramedic, uh, I was stationed for a while in Apache Junction, which was in the middle of no place. And but we would uh, get our uh, take our cars out to the, to the ambulance station out there or we would be coming from the hospital or going on a call and once you hit Gilbert Road you would plunge into citrus groves all the way past Val Vista all the way uh, for miles and miles and miles almost to the V-Line Highway and uh, you miss the Japanese flower gardens if I've already said that uh, forgive me um, and so it, ma it makes me sad Weren't the, the, the flower gardens on clustered on baseline? Or? The flower gardens were on two-lane baseline road. Yeah. And uh, they were on, on both sides of the uh, of baseline, and they were run by uh, Japanese families. Um, when I was growing up, we would uh, go down every Saturday to baseline road and buy cut flowers the uh, house in in what is now Willow, um, but they also uh, shipped cut flowers just like everything else of our bountiful Salt River Valley on in refrigerated boxcars all over the country. 
so the, again, we come back to the importance of the railroads to, to Phoenix then and coming right up into the mid-90s. Um, well, it's a good segue talking about the railroad uh, with these books set in the 30s, 1936, this new one. Um, you know, of course, during the height of the Depression, so many men were thrown onto the road, onto the, onto the railroad lines, and uh, this kind of wonderful uh, hobo culture kind of developed. Uh, and, you know, enter a private, there, it's easy for people to disappear in this environment. And, um, you know, Hammond, tell us a little bit about, uh, about Gene, Gene Hammonds and his brother. World War One vets. Uh, yeah, uh, Gene Hammonds is the younger brother of Don Hammonds, and they were both uh, doughboys, uh, although they disliked the term like many World War One uh, soldiers did. Um, and they both saw combat in World War One in in France or France. Um, and uh, they came back to Phoenix. Uh, they were natives. Uh, their parents died in the uh, 1918 to 1920 uh, influenza pandemic, which was unusual because the the uh, strange and dangerous and still not fully understood element of that pandemic was that Unlike many influenza pandemics, that one especially struck young people. Um, but in any event, they came back to Phoenix. Don went to work on the Phoenix Police Force, and Gene, as he did in World War I, uh, followed Don's lead and joined the Phoenix Police. Uh, Gene got in trouble for speaking his mind too much. Gee, who does that sound like? Um, and so he was kicked off the force in the uh, name of budget cuts. Gee, what do, what does that sound like? Um, oh, I could tell you stories. Um, and so he becomes a private investigator. Right, and um, you know, so much of the, in this particular book, uh, well, before I get on that, um, there's a lot of nods to kind of classic private eye fiction in this book, in these books. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Hammett or Chandler or both? What's your preference? Oh, Chandler, definitely. <laughs> I, I mean, even in the Mapstone Mysteries, and especially with, um, what the hell was the first one? Concrete Desert. Or if the, the dessert... Uh, it could be uh, a cookbook called Concrete Dessert, but uh, Concrete Desert was deliberately an homage to uh, uh, Ch Raymond Chandler. It's got that kind of, you know, Chandler just sort of, you ever read his letters? Has anybody read Chandler's letters? I really? have. I've got them. Aren't they fascinating? They I mean, are. He just bleeds all over the page. Yeah. You know? Um, Whereas you look at Hammett's, you know, it's just the facts, ma'am. Kind of very tough and terse. And so, but th I see a lot of Chandler in the books, but I do see some Hammett, too. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. I, I uh, 
was never a, a huge Hammett fan. I know that's sacrilegious uh, among mystery writers, but I'm glad you see it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, before we get into talking about the nurse, the nurse murders, uh, talk a little bit about the first book and the, uh, the case that he, that Hammond solves, the University Park Strangler case. Well, and that carries over into both books. The first book, and I didn't get to choose the titles for either of these books. All of the previous books I've written, I chose the title. But the first book, City of Dark Corners, um, involves Gene's first uh, year as a private investigator. He's been kicked off the force. Um, and a case comes his way, and his brother, who is uh, an alcoholic and an opium addict, uh, because in those days Phoenix had a Chinatown, and there were basements where uh, people could go to smoke opium. Um, that seems very civilized, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> like, you know, lying in there on a pallet with a... Maybe well, that, compared maybe that says more about me. <laughs> com compared Sign to today, com compared to today, especially in Seattle, but in in any event, uh, his brother draws him into a case that uh, ropes Gene back into working with the police, but not for the police. So his uh, his first outing. Uh, has him uh, struggling to succeed as a PI and struggling to solve this case. Have you all read that book yet? No. Okay. Don't want to spoil it. No. Um, so what's going on in the nurse murders? Tell us what, what Gene's getting up to here. Well, again, I didn't get to pick the title, so it, you could call it The Nurse Murders. What was your title? Or The Merce Nerders. Um, after I didn't get to pick the title, I don't want to air too much dirty laundry here, but uh, after, but what the hell. Because uh, they've, they've kicked me to the curb anyway. Um, but... Uh, the, the Nurse Murders... Uh, is set three years later. Uh, so the the country is slowly recovering from the, de the depths of the Depression. It wouldn't fully recover until the eve of World War II. Uh, Phoenix has recovered uh, more than most places because uh, the Arizona congressional delegation uh, ensured that Phoenix got much more than its fair share, and the same thing was true of Arizona, of New Deal money. Phoenix was a solid democratic city, and Arizona was a solidly democratic uh, state, believe it or not, that voted for FDR. And he, he actually campaigned here. There's a photo of him with uh, Senator Carl Hayden, looking young but still bald and uh, Governor George W.P. Hunt, uh, or as, as he was known, Old Walrus, who was Arizona's first governor and uh, 
the president of the Constitutional Convention that wrote Arizona's Constitution and served uh, multiple terms as governor off and on. Uh, it was two-year terms back then, but uh, he was in the 30s back in the governor's uh, office of the state capitol building, which most people don't know is the uh, was built as the territorial capitol building. That is the museum now, which is a shame because that brutalist uh, executive office tower is. I I did a rogue columnist post on the the ugliest buildings in Phoenix, and <laughs> the the executive office tower is one of them. Police headquarters is another one, um, and uh, I could go on and on. There's abundant competition for the ugliest building in Phoenix and in Scottsdale. In 1936, I mean, obviously things are starting to heat up again in Europe, you know, um, in a big way. Uh, and Gene and, and his brother are talking about, you know, they know war is going to come again eventually. Um, t talk a little bit about the size of Phoenix at this time. In the 1930s, the original town site, you know, has obviously grown and expanded, and it's kind of interesting um, to you can actually date the progression or the growth of the city by the style of the homes. You know, uh, the 20s, you know, as it spreads out, um, much more utilitarian sort of block 1940s homes. Uh, in 36, w what were the kind of rough boundaries? Do you know? Well, uh, what I can tell you is that in 1950, uh, Phoenix uh, entered the ranks of the 100 largest cities at number 99, and it had about 100,000 people. And it was 100,000 people in 17 square miles. So Phoenix in 1950 had the essentially the same density as Seattle does today. Um, and it was served by streetcars. It was very walkable. Downtown was the central retail district and the central business district. Um, and so it, it wasn't much different then in, in 1936. So you could probably mark the southern boundary at... Uh, maybe Buckeye Road and the northern boundary at maybe Thomas and the eastern boundary at maybe uh, 24th Street and then the western boundary uh, around 19th Avenue. Uh, the uh, Both the Southern Pacific and the Santa Fe didn't want to pay city taxes and so they didn't want their railroad yards annexed into the city. And so the, the SP railroad yard that still exists uh, just uh, south of Jefferson Street and between 16th Street and, and uh, 7th Street, that was not in the city limits. And the Mobest yard of the Santa Fe, now the BNSF, uh, owned by Warren Buffett, um, was 
and and still is on the uh, west side of 19th Avenue between McDowell and uh, essentially Fillmore. And the Santa Fe didn't want to pay city taxes, so they were not uh, annexed in. There was an island running around uh, where the Phoenix Country Club was where uh, they were starting to build uh, mansions uh, in the, I guess it's called the Country Club Estates, and they didn't want to pay Phoenix taxes, and so they were, it, it was a long time before they were zoned in. Gee, what does that sound like? <laughs> Sounds like Arizona. Um, and so that it, it was a compact city, very walkable, and uh, it would be a long time before it changed because the city limits weren't that far different in, in 1950. Uh, the county had much less, had much more lax zoning or laxer zoning, avoid unnecessary words, drunk and white. Um, and as a result of that, a great deal of construction happened out in the county and uh, lax regulation uh, brought that to happen. What does that sound like, kind of Arizona today? It is kind of interesting to think of, uh, you know, North High on uh, Thomas and what is it, 12th Street, yep. being the northern edge of town <laughs> at that time. Um, and then you know, there's some little places north, like the Cherry Lynn scattering of homes from the 20s. It must have been out in the middle of nowhere at that time. Well, when when we lived on Holly Street, uh, we uh, the previous owner had passed on an album of uh, the house in the neighborhood, and so our house was built in 1914, two years after Arizona entered the Union, and um, the houses on the southern side of of Holly Street were built around uh, 1910. And so there was a slow progression, and these these homes were almost artisan-level houses. Uh, they were built individually, uh, and this is certainly true of the houses south of McDowell. Uh, these were... Uh, very individual. Uh, there were certain styles that were common, such as bungalows. Um, but you you can go to, uh, I believe it's Third Avenue in Portland on the northwest corner, and you can correct me, uh, north of downtown folks, if you wish, and you'll see this wonderful Italian mansion that has a sweeping veranda. And that was the uh, home to Frenchie View, uh, a very different Frenchie than my character, Frenchie, uh, who was a real person as well. But Frenchie View uh, made his fortune by building sidewalks all around Central Phoenix. And you'll still see the uh, Frenchie View uh, imprinted on the the concrete of the sidewalks. I think that uh, Susan went out and uh, 
uh, made some kind of an imprint uh, of that, uh, of the Frenchy View sidewalks. You know, there's one, there's one right in front of your old school, Kenilworth. And uh, what's kind of neat to see is that I was walking along there recently, and they replaced a bunch of the sidewalk, but they left that one square, which I um, thought was very For respectful. once, Phoenix does something decent. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you brought up Frenchy Navarre, uh, your character, and there are a lot of a lot of real Phoenix characters out of Phoenix history that that appear in the, in these books, which is a lot of fun, um, including and Cal will chime in here. Uh, one Kemper Marley that appears on like page two or something, page three. Uh, uh, the there are some fictional characters in here. Uh, in both of these books, but they're loaded with uh, real-life uh, Phoenix people. Uh, Barry Goldwater, Del Webb. Uh, I don't think Fan was in it yet. Uh, but but Paul Fan and Barry Goldwater and Margaret Hans and I all went to Kenilworth School, not at the same time. They're dead. I'm not. <laughs> is there yet? Is there truth to when they put the story about how they they changed the freeway to save the route of the freeway downtown? Is that true? Is what true? Well, that uh, some may, maybe Goldwater and some other influential people kind of interceded and to save Kenilworth School by rerouting the the freeway. Well, the Papago Freeway Interloop is one of the biggest mistakes ever, ever made. 3,000 houses were destroyed to ram that freeway through. Uh, the Moreland Parkway was much shadier and more beautiful than the preserved Portland Parkway. These were built as part of the City Beautiful movement. And from Anyway, so it was going to come through. The Wilbur Smith Freeway Plan was submitted to uh, a to the State Highway Department, which is what it really should be called now, since we're not going to get any trains. Uh, the Department of Transportation is a joke name, uh, but the Highway Department approved it, and the City of Phoenix approved it. Could have been worse. They wanted to run a freeway down Roosevelt, uh, but. At first, it was going to soar 100 feet high over Central Phoenix. So at Central Avenue, it would have been 100 feet in the air. And it would have reached uh, 3rd Avenue and 3rd Street by helicoils that would come down. I'm not making this up. And What uh, could go wrong? <laughs> oh, like a semi falling off the freeway into your neighborhood? although there wouldn't be much neighborhood left after you build a freeway. Um, but in any event, there was, as far as I know, a grassroots movement to, first of all, um, hold back on the freeway. There's a, a great myth out there that Gene Pulliam single-handedly defeated the freeway, and that's not true because there was a grassroots movement to vote down the freeway in the 1970s, and it succeeded for a while until there were so many newcomers and they'd moved so far out and the uh, leadership of Phoenix was so anti-mass transit and then Valtrans was voted down, which 
would have been a very advanced and useful mass transit system, uh, that the freeways became unavoidable. They were not built with interstate funds. Instead, they were built with sales tax money. So they, uh, the burden of building those freeways fell the heaviest on those who made the least. Um, but in any event, uh, saving Kenilworth School was a close-run thing, as uh, the Duke of Wellington said about Waterloo. And uh, as far as I can tell, that was a... Uh, uh, a grassroots movement to do so. Uh, Margaret Hance deserves to have the mountain preserve named after her because she was instrumental in making that happen. She did nothing for downtown or central Phoenix. In fact, she did tremendous damage. Uh, there's a Latin expression about speak only good of the dead that my Coronado Latin teacher Magister O or Leo O'Flaherty uh, taught us, but I have forgotten. But uh, be be that as it may, uh, Mayor Hans, uh, even though she grew up in the central city, uh, she did nothing for that, and I refuse to call it Margaret Hans Park. I call it the Deck Park, and that's just my uh, prejudice. Forgive me. Yeah, it's funny. I live on Moreland Street, right around 7th Avenue, and all the houses on our block have these horrible cracks, you know, uh, because we're so close to this massive hole. And so it's like, depending upon the time of year, uh, the cracks will widen and then go back in there. Do you have inside the house? I'm sorry? Do you have inside the house? Yeah, we have some inside, too, and outside. The, this is the price we pay for for car culture and having this massive gash of a freeway. That used to be a, a contiguous neighborhood that ran all the way from Thomas to Roosevelt and beyond. And so of those 3,000 3, houses that were demolished to ram that the Papago inner loop through, uh, I would say a good 50% were the kind of priceless historic houses that are now worth a million dollars in places like Willow. Um, there was a, an option to connect at the Durango curve, and that's what they should have done. Because they built the, the South Mountain Freeway anyway, that was a boondoggle that, that uh, some connected people made a lot of money off of. Uh, because if you don't build freeways, then uh, the land isn't worth anything, and you can't uh, uh, keep building tract houses, stamp them out like cookie cutters, and then wonder, gee, why can't we get more water? Um, well, as you all know, I mean, so much of the fun of reading your books um, is, is reading about, you know, all the, the sites and the, the places that we all know. Um, however, is there a challenge? Do you face a challenge in the amount of detail that you put in? Like when you're when you're writing about 1930s Phoenix, uh, how is there a fine line between packing it with de detail and potentially losing the reader? Um, what? How does that work? Well, these are not Diane and Gabaldon size books and my my pocketbook is not the size of Diana's 
and she's a wonderful writer, and you should buy some of her books tonight. Um, but so I think you can tell by the size of this, the thickness of this book, um, that it's not too packed. I I want there to be uh, enough verisimilitude that people will get the sense that that I get things right about uh, what life was like in the 1930s in Phoenix. And um, I don't know if that answers your question. I I think it's the right amount. Yeah. Not too much, uh, not too little. Uh, and and don't get it wrong. In, right. in other words, uh, don't uh, don't have everything revolve around the airport, yeah. because transportation then revolved around the railroads. Right. Right. And there, you know, Phoenix has this wonderfully lurid underbelly and hi criminal history that uh, really deserves to be explored, which uh, you do. You know, you talk, you, you take us down into, you know, the Paris Alley and all these. And the red light district that, yeah. that ran from about, uh, uh, oh, say 12th Street to 16th Street and a little farther beyond and south of Jefferson Street. I remember some years ago you were talking about you were looking for more photographs of the, of the deuce in its prime. Um, have you found more as the years have gone by? Uh, I've found some more, um, but I I keep hoping and wishing I could find more. Um, there are some areas that are are just not very well photographed, or and by that I mean documented by photography. It doesn't mean there were bad photographers and they weren't well photographed. Um, and so uh, the deuce is one, uh, and many parts of, of uh, Central Avenue is another. Uh, Phoenix used to have all sorts of wonderful dive bars. Uh, the late John Bauma, as Nellon Wilmer and I would talk about the number of bars, and he was an encyclopedia of these old dive bars. So when I was an EMT paramedic and we'd get off duty, uh, it would, would be 8 in the morning, but it'd be the end of our day. And so we'd go to uh, one of two bars that were on McDowell. One was called Crins, and the other was called The Anchor. And I believe we, we called The Anchor, Anchor Samaritan, and we called... <laughs> Uh, Crins, St. Crins, or something like that. And these were dark, smoky dive bars, and there's no photographs of those. Uh, there's very, very few photos of uh, the Miracle Mile on McDowell, uh, not enough photos of, of the railroad yards back in the day. There, there's a wonderful collection at ASU of the McCullough brothers, but they were commercial photographers, and so there just aren't enough railroad photos outside of Union Station. There's, they took plenty of photos at Union Station, but we had uh, massive refrigerated boxcars, a.k.a. reefers, not <laughs> reefers. <laughs> 
Um, and then you exhale. Or so I have read. Um, and uh, so I would love to see some of those photos. Well, I mean, we haven't really talked about the book yet, have we? Uh, tell us a little bit about, about what's going on in the nurse murders. Well, when the nurse murders begins, Gene is doing much better than he was three years before. He's very much in demand, and his, his practice as a private eye is going very well. Um, and uh, he runs across a mysterious stranger who wants to engage his services, and then we're off to the races. And I don't want to give a, give a spoiler alert, so maybe there's another way you want to address it. Okay. So tell us a little bit about uh, this great character, Pamela Brad. Bradbury. Uh, well, Pamela uh, in uh, in the Night Detectives. Um, no, in in the Night Detectives of the Mapstone, uh, David David says to himself about the names he likes, and he talks about Susan and Linda, and and then he says Pamela, three syllables of sexy. Now that's David. In uh, Pamela first appears as a uh, about to be uh, graduating from uh, the state teachers college in Tempe, or as the narrators of my books just habitually say, Tempa or Tempa or how hard is this? Um, That is where Gene meets her first because he's investigating a murder that involves somebody she might have known. And that's where she makes her first appearance. Now she m makes a full-on appearance uh, in the nurse murders or the nurse murders. Um, and um, here is an example of a character like Lindsay in the Mapstone Mysteries where uh, she starts off as a peripheral character, but just kind of worms her way into the author's head, and you can't get rid of her. Um, and that's one of the delightful things is is when you're writing a novel, uh, the novel has the ability to surprise you. She's a great character. She she really seems like a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I had I had fun with Pamela. Don't <laughs> tell my wife. <laughs> um, you know, obviously most of us know about the the Winnie Ruth Judd case. You know, very famous, 1930, 31, I think it was. Um, and and just reading about, you know, what a sm fairly small place it was, and all these. I ha well, I shouldn't probably shouldn't say this because we're live, but. Um, Somebody came in I was talking with that was uh, part of the O'Malley family. Yeah. The lumber, you know, the lumber family. And um, we got talking about, you know, because there's some connection with the O'Malley's and that case um, in some way. And uh, she was talking about how, yeah, there are some old men who went to their grave, you know, keeping some pretty big secrets. Uh, 
and you know t just this whole world of you know the summer wives and um, you know these sort of young party girls that were put up in these duplexes downtown and surprise surprise who owned that duplex Ruth Judd's the O'Malley's yeah. yeah I had a friend who worked for the title company run a complete history of that duplex and during that period the O'Malley lumber company owned that property um, so how come I didn't have a college life like that yeah right right and then the you know some of those girls worked at the Gruno clinic which is still still yeah there. Um, well the Phoenix definitely had it its underbelly of real and fictionalized crime that's one of the reasons it's such a great muse for me um, but in the 1930s um, you had a very small and insular city and uh, she never went by Winnie she went by Ruth Judd and there's no way that she could have possibly uh, sawed those women apart and uh, stuffed them into trunks then she took them down to Union Station got on the Golden State Limited went to Los Angeles and uh, when a baggage man saw uh, blood seeping out of the trunks uh, he called the LAPD and she was arrested she was extradi extradited back to Phoenix and stood trial and was uh, sentenced to death but there was always lingering suspicion that somebody else was involved and I don't want to do a spoiler alert but uh, Jean's involvement in this case in both City of Dark Corners and the nurse murders or Merce murders because uh, I didn't get to choose the titles uh, what was the, your title? Uh, we want to know. Well, for City of Dark Corners, my title was Sunset Limited because it had a lot to do with trains, and the premier S Southern Pacific train through Phoenix was called Sunset Limited. Uh, I didn't even pick a title for the nurse murders because I knew that they would pick it for me, and so all through the writing process, the title was simply Working Title. Sorry to derail you. What were we were talking about? Uh, Jean's involvement in the case, and well, Jean, Jean, as a uh, detective, the youngest detective on the force, was involved in um, see. I always have that effect on people. <laughs> I know. I know I I got it too um, but in any event uh, Jean in in both City of Dark Corners and the nurse murders uh, has two things that trail him around one is that his involvement in the Ruth Judd case and his uh, being fired from the police and then the second thing that follows him around is the uh, University Park Strangler case which he was the detective who solved that is fictional although there is a part of Phoenix that's called University Park 
that most people don't know about. It's uh, between, it's west of Grand Avenue and north of Van Buren Street. And um, it was supposed to be the site of a university built by the Methodist Episcopal Church. But for whatever reason, the university wasn't built, but it maintained the name University Park. And you can only uh, imagine the what might have been, because Phoenix is by far the largest city in the country with only one real university. I guess the U of Hay is up here in some presence, but <laughs> but it's it's certainly not like uh, other cities when. When Los Angeles reached a million people, much faster than Phoenix did, by the way, uh, it already had about five uh, major universities, including uh, UCLA and the University of Spoiled Children, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise known as USC, where I did a fellowship, so I shouldn't be... Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't diss my pseudo-alma mater. Go Trojans. <laughs> Before we open it up to questions, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the portrait of John Talton as a young man. Um, I know you went to Kenilworth and then you went to Coronado and on the ambulances. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, before you really became a writer and how your sort of sensibilities were shaped. And I know your mom played a role in that, right? Uh... Yeah, it was a dark and stormy night, or <laughs> he was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, I'm i a fourth-generation Arizonan, and uh, I went to Kenilworth School uh, in the area north of downtown Phoenix, uh, and then... When I went to high school, we moved out to Scottsdale, and it wasn't called South Scottsdale then. Uh, it was. Uh, I've learned that that there's some uh, class difference in Chandler, which, when I was on the ambulance, was this teeny tiny little spot out in the middle of the alfalfa fields. But that South Chandler is somehow superior to the rest of Chandler. But that's the way things go here. Everybody. Everybody vies for the opportunity to look down on somebody else, like there's North Scottsdale and South Scottsdale. But back to the story, we we moved to Scottsdale, and I had the the uh, gift of going to Coronado High School, where my Arizona history teacher was Marshall Trimble. We had a we had a a wonderful music and theater program. Uh, it was. Uh, some of the best training of my life for theater, uh, which I double majored in theater and history, and then I went on to graduate school uh, in my at Miami University in history. I was gonna, uh, I was going to uh, get my PhD as my uh, exit from newspapering because there was supposed to be all these retirements of professors. That never happened. But my doc or my uh, uh, faculty advisor 
uh, told me that I wrote too clearly to be a successful academic historian, and so that was that. Um, I was uh, I was teaching theater at a small college in southeast Oklahoma, otherwise known as Little Dixie, and it is. Um, and um, they paid me so poorly that I saw that there was an opening for a reporter at the local newspaper. And I went down there and I applied and the gruff old editor and weren't they all. And you should read Deadline Man if you haven't. Uh, always be selling. Um, he looked up at me and he, he said, can you spell? And I said I could. And so he hired me. <laughs> and, and I started out working on manual typewriters. And I worked my way up to uh, from there. Uh, I worked at this uh, fierce uh, PM newspaper in the North County of San Diego called the Blade Tribune. Uh, where we uh, locked them up and put them in jail with our stories. Um, and then I uh, went to Beaumont, Texas with Hearst for, with the Beaumont Enterprise. And I uh, led the I-team as well as being the business editor. The I-team was looking into the suspicious deaths of... Uh, prostitutes and people involved in the drug trade and uh, they had a contract out on us to kill us so we were armed at all times. The uh, the Texas Rangers gave us a phone number to call in case we got uh, hauled into some local police department that was compromised and it was Uncle Bob and we would use our one phone call to call Uncle Bob so the Texas Rangers could spring us before they put us in an oil drum in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> From there I went to the Dayton Daily News, which in those days was a grand, wonderful paper. Uh, and from there I went to, I became a turnaround business editor who would fix bad business sections and make them better. But that always involved just uh, loosening the, the reins on the good people who already worked there. I only fired two people in my entire career as a business editor. I went to the Rocky Mountain News, and then I went to the Cincinnati Inquirer, then I went to the Charlotte Observer. Uh, and I, I vowed I would never go back to the South. And, but, I went, but the only good thing that came out of that was I found Susan. Um, and uh, then I made the mistake of uh, uh, accepting an offer to be a columnist at the Arizona Republic. Every journalist has a fantasy of becoming a columnist in his or her or their hometown. And uh, man, did I screw up. And. And the worst part of it was that I should have gotten on mood-stabilizing drugs and written about how wonderful everything is <laughs> and how wonderful the politics are and how, how great it is that we're eating up an acre, acre an hour with uh, sprawl real estate. And there's no such thing as the real estate industrial complex. Never written any of those things, no matter how many mood-stabilizing drugs I would ha have had to have taken. And then there was the damn spinal cord tumors, 
that put me in a wheelchair because most of the time I could walk, and that makes a big difference. Uh, I started writing uh, my first novel when I was around 28, and I sent it off to uh, 50 uh, agents and, pub and publishing houses. I got 50 rejection letters. I taped them to the wall in front of me. This is, <clears throat> I'm sure somebody else's did the somebody else did this, but I did it, and then it got so depressing I stopped doing that. <laughs> so I put that book away, and then I wrote what became Concrete Desert in the 1990s, um, and sent that off to 50 they 50 rejections, um, and then the Charlotte Observer had this event that was, and I forget what it was called, but it was uh, what uh, our writers and editors do in their spare time. And so you had uh, several people playing the guitar, and then you had a number of people uh, with very badly done Southern Gothic novels, you know, imitation Faulkner. I no disrespect to my colleagues. And then I got up and I read part of uh, the second book, which I'd already started, which is uh, uh, now Camelback Falls is the third. This is uh, Cactus Heart. I I read one chapter of Cactus Heart, and uh, the audience was just blown away, to use a cliché. Good editors remove clichés, as Tina can attest. Um, and uh, so I thought, well, maybe this is really worth trying. And I was fortunate enough to have a friend from Cincinnati who was working in New York at the time, and she uh, got me into a real live agent who had uh, contacts in the New York publishing world because if you're not, if you didn't go to the Iowa Writers Workshop and you don't live in New York, you don't live with a, a editor at Alfred Akinoff, you're not going to get anointed. Um, that's my word for it, anointed. And, and uh, so he had his reader, uh, this agent had his reader uh, check out my book and the, the reader said, uh, this is astonishingly good, and you need to take this guy on. And so my agent did take me on, and he, uh, one night he took a cruise where he knew he would uh, meet some uh, editors from uh, St. Martin's Press, and he happened to cajole one of them into taking it, and St. Martin's uh, bought it, and... I was off to the races. I never made it big. I was just a mid-list author. Um, and uh, the uh, the next Mapstone books uh, flowed very easily. Um, some of the others, not so much, but uh, the Cincinnati case books, I love those. Uh, they but they don't sell well. I don't know why books set in Cincinnati don't sell, but they don't. Um, and uh, 
does that answer your question? I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the whole thing is totally accidental. My mother wanted me to be a lawyer. Is that right? So how, how did you end up in Seattle? Well, the Arizona Republic fired me. They fired me for calling the real estate crash. And uh, I wasn't the only journalist to call the real estate crash, but I was one of the few. And fortunately, I had ties with the Seattle Times because I'd been, uh, I had interviewed for their business editor job a few years before, and that's another story. But I had connections with the Seattle Times, so I went up there and was fortunate enough to become uh, the business and economics columnist for the Times, winner of 11 Pulitzer Prizes, locally owned, and delivers a print newspaper seven days a week, and every day that we're in business and I'm employed, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> um, but uh, when I called the bank run on Washington Mutual, instead of being fired, I was rewarded. And when I uh, write about the tough stuff, they allow me to do it. It's totally different than Gannett, much less the new Gannett, which is really not the old Gannett, the new Gannett, which is... USA Today. No, the new <laughs> Gannett is... Um, what is that company called that bought... Oh, Gatehouse. Yeah, Gatehouse. I call it Well, yeah. Gatehouse, which took the Gannett name, makes, uh, makes the old Gannett look like Knight Ritter or the New York Times. <laughs> and, and by the way, thanks for selling Knight Ritter, Tony. Hi, Tony. Hope you're enjoying it up there on the peninsula. Questions? Okay, good. We're Uh, for my mental health, I don't read the comments. <laughs> uh, but I try to give a response to everyone who emails me, even the uh, dude who emailed me and wrote, Talton, you're, Y-O-U-R, an idiot. <laughs> you should put that on your next book, like a, a blurb. That would be great. Um, I just need to take my mood-stabilizing drugs here for a minute, if you'll bear with me. Otherwise, I might have the kind of management Tourette's that, I, that didn't do me well in newspapering. Management Tourette's being that I would be in a meeting where they were talking about the latest fad in journalism, and I would just suddenly go, bullshit. Well, I guess, um, should we go ahead and, and break up and have you sign some books for us? Or, or do we have some more? Any other questions?
We'll get to you, Kel. Okay. Uh, well, Donis knows the answer, so I'll just thanks for teeing it up. <clears throat> uh, the uh, the Poison Pen Press was sold to a company called Sourcebooks a few years ago, and it was a company I'd never even heard of. And uh, Sourcebooks has no interest in. Uh, any other books that I will write. And uh, they certainly have no interest in Mapstone books, even though every day I get an email from a reader asking when is the next Mapstone. And Donna's had much the same experience. Um, so this may be the end of my publishing career because I can't get an agent uh, and I can't get in the door at at some fancy schmancy house like Knopf or Ballantine, uh, must be nice. Uh, maybe I'll self-publish. I, I have two books in me that I'd like to publish, to see published. I mean, I, I'm a professional writer. I don't write out of retirement. I don't write because I want to see my name in print. God, I've my name has been in print for for 40 years. Even though I'm only 27, I've just <laughs> aged very badly. Um, but uh, one is uh, a novel about my time on the ambulance. And uh, I had written one before. That was one of the ones I sent off, got 50 rejection letters, including from St. Martin's, that said this is a very good and moving book. Unfortunately, it doesn't meet her needs at this time. Blah, 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 blah. Go to hell. Um, and when St. Martin's bought Concrete Desert, I had this fantasy, because authors have very rich fantasy lives. And um, my fantasy was that it would be such a big hit that St. Martin's would say, give us Everything you've ever written, everything, anything, anything, recipes, post-it notes, out of the office messages so that we can get it out there to your adoring public. <clears throat> now, uh, Concrete Desert sold out in two weeks. And St. Martin's response was, well, we're not going to publish a second edition. And only when my agent leaned on them did they publish a second edition. What I learned about St. Martin's is they'll put their marketing muscle behind a couple of authors and everybody else has to fend for themselves. But um, in any event, I've wandered far off the track here. The, the ambulance book I would like to completely rewrite, and the original title was called Response Times. But the title that I want to put on it is Unknown Trouble, because anybody who has worked in law enforcement or on the ambulance knows that uh, an unknown trouble call can mean anything from uh, somebody's fallen to somebody's going to point a gun at you. Um, and the second book is a memoir. And the only thing I have is a title, and the title would be 
Last Train from Eden, comma, a memoir by John Talton. And I'll probably have to self-publish, and I'll probably sell 10 copies. And that's a whole heck of a lot of work to go through because I don't write spec on spec because, again, I am a professional writer, and I should have become a CPA or a lawyer. Have you guys looked at Severn House? I know Jeffrey Seiger kind of got a new deal at Severn House, and they do. Well, it's possible. Yeah. But I think there were some other questions yeah, let's uh, before we keep people there. too long. Uh, I don't really have any interest in true crime, but one thing I learned about when I first wrote about Marley and... Uh, in the bomb shelter is that you can't libel the dead, and that's so helpful. <laughs> uh, Mayor Hans, you you tell me you were her bodyguard. Well, that was because she liked to tipple early in the morning, and she needed somebody to drive her. Larry Wetzel was the Phoenix police chief. Same thing was true with, with Jack Williams. He had a collision right in front of Kenilworth School because he liked to tipple as well. Um, interesting little side note, Jack Williams, a.k.a. One-Eyed Jack, who served as Arizona governor for many years uh, and the mayor of Phoenix before that, he started out at KOI Radio as an announcer, and he was the first one to read the news and he was also he also covered the Winnie Ruth Judd trial for KOY. And he would never say how he lost that eye. He would tell different stories. He would say it was a he would say it was a knife fight or something else. Oh, I have no doubt. So, one more question. I'm just curious about how that time you spent doing research, um, because I was very impressed when I heard Montserrat Turner was your high school uh, history teacher. So, how much time do you have to spend researching to make sure you're getting what you're putting in accurate as it can be taken from one of these Sure. Um, well, Carrie, the, the, the short answer is it depends on the book. Most of the Mapstone books, I knew Phoenix so well and know it so well, uh, it requires very little research. When I was writing The Bomb Shelter, I spent hours and hours and hours with uh, many of the investigators who had uh, been part of the investigation into the Bowles murder. And so in that case, there was a lot of research. I still have those notes, and Cal was instrumental in opening doors for me on that. Uh, in uh, With the Gene Hammonds novels, I've already written uh, a tremendous amount on 1930s Phoenix in uh, 
on my blog called Rogue Columnist, www.roguecolumnist.com. Always be selling. Um, but it's free. It's pro bono uh, because nobody else is writing what I write about Phoenix. Um, I like the uh, We Built It, You Bastards. Yeah, that's for light rail. We built it, you bastards. And the reason was that the the opposition was so thuggish and hysterical, even though it's been a tremendous success. Uh, I, I came to Scottsdale one night to, uh, I was uh, offered the chance to speak, and some guy said he'd shoot me if they brought light rail to Scottsdale. And I said, well, come up here and do it, because you better make the first shot count. I was taught, I'm unarmed, but I was taught to shoot by my mother, who was a crack shot, and you better make the first one count. And then things kind of dissolved into chaos until my dry sense of humor could bring things back <laughs> into shape. And let's just say that Scottsdale, even though I went to, sc to high school here, uh, doesn't really like me. Scottsdale, oh Scottsdale, as Mapstone says to himself in uh, The Night Detectives. I don't know. I mean, we're in Scottsdale. We like you. Well, in, in, in The Night Detectives, there is a reference to, quote, the wonderful Poison Pen bookstore, unquote. Ding, 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 ding. Always be selling. Well, yeah, I think this is a good note to stop on. Exactly. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight, as always. Thank you so much. Nice round of applause for John. Thank you so much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.